I've been around the world twice and spoken to everyone once. I've been to three world fairs. I'm a hard-bodied, rootin', tootin', shootin', parachutin', demolition, double-cap, crimpin', frog man, and there ain't nothing that I can't do. There's no sky too high, no sea too rough, and no rough too tough. I've learned a lot of lessons in my life. Never shoot a large caliber man with a small caliber bullet. I've driven all kinds of trucks, two buys, four buys, and six buys. Anything in life is worth overdoing. Moderation is for cowards. I'm a lover. I'm a fighter. I'm a UDT Navy SEAL diver. This frogman has been there and is going back for more. Cheers, boys. I read that to my kids yesterday afternoon. They said, what's that? I said, it makes you want to run through a wall. And they said, yes, it does. It's from an old Navy SEAL creed known as the Frogman's Ballad. Frogmen are skilled underwater diving men used for tactical and military demolition purposes. The ultimate frogmen, of course, are the Navy SEALs. SEALs are a tactical band of small groups of hand-picked, highly trained men grouped into elite special forces who carry out orders to capture and kill high-level targets or gather intelligence behind enemy lines. And they carry out their mission out of devotion, out of loyalty for the country, and the band of brothers that they fight with. My loyalty to country and team is beyond reproach, their creed says. I humbly serve as a guardian to my fellow Americans, always ready to defend those who are unable to defend themselves. I do not advertise the nature of my work, nor seek recognition. I voluntarily accept the inherent hazards of my profession, placing the welfare and security of others before my own. I will never quit. I persevere and thrive on adversity. My nation expects me to be physically harder and mentally stronger than my enemies. If knocked down, I will get back up every time. I will draw on every remaining ounce of strength to protect my teammates and accomplish the mission. I am never out of the fight. We demand discipline and expect innovation. We train for war and fight to win. I stand ready to bring the full spectrum of combat power to bear in order to achieve my mission and accomplish the goals of my country. The execution of my duties will be swift and violent when required, yet guided by the very principles that I serve to defend. Simplify, always faithful, de oppresso libir, to free from oppression. Now, in our current, just stay with me for a moment. So we, we go to our text. We're hovering, we're circling around our text, and we're going to land in a minute. And our current cultural mood in which even academics are recognizing how increasingly common it is to malign masculinity and in which devotion rises no higher than oneself, the men of the Navy SEALs show us the need for a muscular masculinity that's rightly used and the beauty and deep honor of loyalty for the welfare and security of others besides your own life. Seals work successfully precisely because they harness their superior God-given strength as men for the welfare of others, and they show a devotion to something greater than themselves or their career. It's the same thing we're going to see in our passage from the Bible this morning. Now, according to Richard Reeves, a British author and intellectual of the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., quote, boys are falling behind in education, men are losing in the labor market, Fathers have lost their traditional role in the family, and males are much more likely to be socially excluded, suffer from mental health, suicide, and violent crimes. Those are all titles and takings from a chapter, chapters of the book that Reeves published 
for the Brookings Think Tank Institute called Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why it Matters, and What to Do About It. Now, his book represents a rising body of academic secular literature revealing that while the lives of women have changed, the lives of men have remained the same or even worsened. Warren Farrell and John Gray document in a similar book called The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Richard Reeves in this academic think tank work provides data showing that men are literally losing their grip. In 1985, writes Reeves, the average man in his early 30s could squeeze your hand with about 30 pounds more force than a similarly aged woman. Today, their grip strength is about the same. The point of this information is not, is certainly not to demigrate womanhood, especially biblical womanhood, especially those like Eve and Hannah and Ruth and Mary and Lydia. May God raise up more women just like them. The point is that God's glory as the marvelous creator is eclipsed when men or women are maligned. God created male and female as co-heirs in Christ to reflect his glory equally, but they do so in different but complementary roles. But when you flatten and reduce all differences between men and women to nothing more than social constructs, then God himself becomes nothing more than a social construct, leaving the feet of a society like ours firmly planted in midair. In which, as just one example, one female senator can ask a female candidate for the highest court of justice in her land what a woman is, and the Supreme Court candidate will not or cannot answer the question. We're witnessing the unmaking of humanity and the remaking of mankind in our image, finding out there's nothing there but a black hole of nothing. And so the scripture is fulfilled. Our society, in professing itself to be wise, is becoming fools. Proverbs 121. C.S. Lewis wrote about this during the Second World War and the abolition of man when in 1943 he offered a critique of the education then and the morality then in Britain. He wrote an abolition of man and our society we make men without chests and then expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked when we find traitors in our midst. We castrate the males and then bid the geldings be fruitful. This is the kind of world that lives apart from the word of a well-ordered God, the maker of heaven and earth, male and female, in his glorious image. What does all this talk of Navy SEALs and loyalty and the need for men to live in accord with their God-given strength have to do with our text in the Bible today? And in talking about men, anytime you talk about one gender, it sounds like you're downplaying the other. We're not. That's who's in our text today. Today we meet a storied band of brothers a special group of elite ancient Navy SEALs serving one of the greatest kings of the world. And in the end, we're not to look at these men, but to look through these men to see what fierce loyalty means to the greatest king and to look again and see the fierce loyalty and love of the greatest king to people like you and me. That's what we'll see in the text today. So would you turn, please, to 2 Samuel 23? 2 Samuel 23. The second half, first half, not half of the Christian Bible. You know, if you've been here, uh, we're at the end of the book, these final four chapters. And we pointed out the noble arrangement of these final four chapters. By now, you should be able to summarize that in your own words, that the two outer chapters of 21 and 24 provide a frame and and they mirror each other. And they frame the inner largely poetic sections of chapter 22 and 23. And these inner chapters of 22 and 23, we have the final songs of David, the last songs on the album of David's life. And they shows us that David says, my whole life is a celebration of God's sovereign grace. 
Now, two weeks ago, at the end of 21, we looked at a list of Navy SEAL-like warriors. And then it's followed by a song of David in chapter 22. Last week, we looked at another song of David in chapter 23, verses 1 to 7. And today, that's immediately followed by another list of Navy SEAL-like warriors in chapter 23, 8 to 39. Now, it's another evidence of the magnificent literary arrangement of the intersection of these final four chapters. Because on either side of David's final words, chapter 2 and 23, on either side of those final few words, he's flanked by his mighty warrior men. It's a regal scene fit for a funeral and, and, and some cafeteria, Westminster Abbey. Here's David the king flanked on both sides of his mighty men. They lived and they fought together and now they will speak a final time and then die together as the book of Samuel comes to an end. There comes the procession, the royal casket of David. And before him and after him comes his mighty men. That's the artful arrangement of these inner chapters of 22 and 23. A great king surrounded by his mighty men. So solemn and august is the scene before us that even King Arthur and his valiant knights of the round table would kneel fist across their chest and bow in reverence as this king and men pass by. That's the scene before us. So David the king has passed by in verses 1 to 7. Let's watch now as the mighty men of that king now pass. And as they do, let there be no nobis and todayim sung as they come. Here comes the first of three of a royal fellowship of mighty men. Would you read Second Samuel 23, 8 to 12 with me? Here they come. This is what Holy Scripture says. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshab Bashebeth, a Tecamanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three men, mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of Ahoi. He was with David. And when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew, he rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi, the Heretite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled before the from the Philistines. But he, he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. This is God's word. Joshua, Beshebeth, Eleazar, and Shema, the first three of the king's mighty men and what deeds are recorded here. If you look at their exploits together, they share one common thing. They share this in common, as Joyce Baldwin notes. They all stood their ground in single combat when the remainder of their army fled. While all others fled, they remained alone as the Philistine armies advanced, and their valiant stand proved to be a turning point from defeat to victory. Well, there's, behold, there's Joshua Bashebeth who wields a spear like a Shaolin warrior and he brings down 800 enemies in one battle. Then comes Eliezer who quickly finds himself alone side by side with King David. But while other men withdraw in the thick of battle, Eliezer with this king, they find themselves alone and outnumbered so close to death they see him wink. 
But as others are knocked down and withdraw, Eleator's knocked down and he gets up again to pursue. He won't quit. He won't run. He remembered the song of his king in 2 Samuel 22:35. God trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of a bronze. He trained for war and Eleazar fought to win. And so fiercely does he fight for his king. And so long does he swing his weapon that his hand grew weary and clings to his sword. He would not quit for his king. Now, uh, the closest, the closest I have remotely, 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 remotely to come to something like that. You may have as well as swinging a maddox to dig a trench for half a day. And by the end, I found it hard to open my hand and let go of the maddox and it hurt to do so. But Eliezer wasn't digging a trench. He was striking down Philistines who were trying to kill his king. And a sword soon became part of his hand, a double-edged blade of certain death. And this Eliezer did alone as everybody else withdrew. And don't forget Shema, the third of the fiercest mentioned here. And this scene bears all the marks of an eyewitness account. There was a plot of ground, a field of lentils. Well, that doesn't sound much like a place for a battle. Can't you say something like Point du Hoc at Normandy as rangers scaled a steep rocky clag at D-Day? That sounds more like it than a field of lentils. Ah, but these details tell us two things. One, to fight in a field of lentils meant he was exposed in the flat in a wide open field. Look at, look at Shema. He's about to get a Philistine arrow to the throat if he doesn't take cover. He's exposed. He's in an open field, a sitting duck, as we would say. But it's at that precise place we're told in verse 12 that he took his stand. He would not, in the words of Tom Petty, back down. He would do what's right. He had just one life. He would stand his ground. He would not back down for his king. He fought. But other than that detail, it tells us how important it was to hold the line at just this spot. The mention of a field of lentils doesn't mean much to us. But in that agrarian world, lentils was a staple food crop. And if they retreated there, they'd not only lose the battle, but lose their food source should they ever be able to regroup. So for the life of king and the livelihood of his countrymen, alone and exposed, Shema takes his stand in the field of lentils. We watched him do it. He defended it and he struck them down. So passes this first trinity of holy terror. There's Joshua, Bathshebeth, Eliezer, and Shema. Their courage and their loyalty, they're single-handedly saved both God's king and God's people. But as they pass and another group of mighty men prepares to make their procession, we have, we have to stop and don't miss what's most important about these mighty men here and at the head of the list, the representative of all that follows. You want to know what really happened in their lives? Look at the end of verse 10. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Look at the end of verse 12. And the Lord worked a great victory. You see, the exploits of these three mighty men and the others that follow were not by might, they were not by power, but they were by my spirit, says the Lord. These are not mere human deeds. Remember David's song in chapter 22? It was the Lord who delivered them from the hand of all their enemies. It's the power of the Lord and the promise of the Lord. Well, where's the promise? In 2 Samuel 3.18, here's what we're told. Now is the time to take action for the Lord promised by the hand of my servant David, I will rescue my people from the hand of the Philistines. Therefore, on the basis of God's promise, they rise and they take action. 2 Samuel 3.18. 
Thus, the success and the survival of Israel, the survival of Israel and their king, these mighty men had but one explanation. Verse 10 and 12, the Lord worked a great victory. So, says Matthew Henry, how great soever the bravery of the instruments is, the praise of the achievement must always be given to God. They fought the battles, but God wrought the victory. As the prophet Jeremiah said, let not the strong man glory in his strength or in any of his military operations, but let him glory in the glory of the Lord. Now, the next group of mighty men are unnamed and they're getting ready to come in 13 to 17. They may be unnamed, but we'll see later they're not unheralded. But I want to save those men here in 13 to 17 for the end. Because they're in the middle of this narrative. It's another indication of the intricacies of the literary way it's arranged. In the middle of this, they're in the middle. These three men, unnamed, are in the middle. It tells a story. And on the middle, you have another list of men. So at the heart of this list is a bunch of mighty men showing you what's at the heart of all of David's mighty men. So we're going to save the heart of what's in the heart of his men for last. So skip down in that section and look at 18 to 19, where the next group of Israelite Navy SEALs passes before us. This time, it's not a royal fellowship of three as previously, but a royal fellowship of two, Abishai and Benaiah. Now, Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was called chief of the 30. And he wielded his spear against 300 men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the 30 and became their commander. But he did not attain to the glory of those first three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehadiah, was a valiant man of Kabzel and a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian man, a handsome man or a huge man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand. But Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed the man with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Johada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over as bodyguard. This, too, is God's word. Now, we've met Abishai before. He's a brave, if impetuous, fighting man. His courage is second to none. Some men are born to teach, some to run, some to run a business. But God made Abishai to fight just like he made the legs of a horse to run. Like Josheb Bashebeth before him, Abishai once yielded a spear like Gandalf the wizard and killed 300 men. But Abishai is not only a fierce warrior, he's fiercely loyal to God's king. Because at the end of chapter 1, it's Abishai who stepped in to save David's life and then told David, you need to stay back home because you're the lamp of Israel. It was Abishai who offered to kill Saul in the cave because Saul was trying to touch the Lord's Messiah King in 1 Samuel 26. It's Abishai who rightly wanted to enact capital punishment of Shimei for hurling maledictions against the Lord's Messiah King in 2 Samuel 19. But he was not only a fierce warrior, he was fiercely loyal to God's king. He fought not for himself, but for somebody greater than himself, for God's Messiah and for God's kingdom. And not to be outdone is Benaiah the brave. He was a valiant man and a doer of great deeds. That's what the text says. He was a valiant man and a doer of great deeds. 
And here we go. You ready? Follow me for a second. Application. And he, he wasn't valiant and great deeds on the Xbox either. Here's what I mean. There are some studies, and I know correlation doesn't mean causality. I get that properly noted. But there are some studies that note that video games and Xbox affect young boys and particularly actually muting their manhood by giving them a false sense of accomplishment and crippling them from taking real risks in life, making them anti-fragile, as Nassim Tlaib says in his book, Anti-Fragile, Things That Game From Disorder. Anti-fragility refers to what happens when you face stressors and hardship, Tlaib explains. When you face stressors and hardship, you get stronger. But video games, in which you can always start over if you're behind or you're losing, and hovering parents can create or enable fragility in boys. See the work of Greg Lukianoff, how overprotective parents leads to fragility. China glasses and plastic cups don't benefit from hardships, but some things, writes Nassim Tlaib, some things like bones and immune systems benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow when they're, expo- when they're exposed to volatility, randomness, disorders, and stressors that results in a person who's now steeled for adventure, ready for risk, and can face uncertainty better. The anti-fragility mindset is a heroic mindset. That's Benaiah, a valiant man, a doer of great deeds. You have to love the description of brave Benaiah's valor in verse 26. What did he do? He went down and he struck a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. Now, it's one thing to take a lion out with a sniper's rifle a mile away. That's not fair. But Benaiah struck down the lion in a pit. What does that tell you? You ever tried to you ever tried to handle a cornered animal? What happens if you corner a raccoon? You lose and the raccoon tunes you into a breakfast cereal, shredded wheat. Well, this lion in a pit means it's most likely hungry and it's angry and it's a lion that's cornered. It's one thing to face a lion, another thing to face an angry cornered lion. And when Benaiah faces him, it's also cold, slippery and snowy. And yet Benaiah single handedly takes the lion out, not with a spear or a bow, but at close distance with a club and his bare hands. But Benaiah not only faced a lion, but in verse 21, he disarmed a lion of a man, a hulking Egyptian. This Egyptian had a, he has a staff and a spear in his hand. And by the time the scene is done, Benaiah has pulled off some kind of mix of Bruce Lee, Jackie Can, Chuck Norris, and Mr. Miyagi. And he snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and then killed him with his own spear. This is one bad hombre, David's mighty man. What's happening? In the context of Samuel, in keeping with God's promise, God is delivering his people and his king from their arch enemies like the Philistines and the king. The Lord is at work preserving his people and his king. And Benaiah is doing it all in the service of the king. He's not simply a fierce warrior, but did you notice the detail in the text? He's fiercely loyal to God's king. For when it was all done, verse 23, David said, I want you as chief of my bodyguard. What a group of valiant men. They stand when others fall. They fight when others flee. And they do it all in loyalty to God's Messiah King. Here is honor. Here is courage. Here is sacrifice. And what a king David must have been that these anti-fragile, heroic men would lay down their life and lay down their sword for this man. One by one. All the mighty men of this chapter file by with their head bowed and a sword raised high, hailing David, O captain, my captain. 
Oh, to serve this kind of king. Oh, to be part of this kind of band of brothers. It's the stuff of legend. And then comes a long line of mighty men who march behind the casket of the king. It's as if the narrator's telling you what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, time would fail to tell you of all the exploits of these men coming behind them. Names hard to pronounce or harder even still to take down. Their names are hard to pronounce because their deeds were hard to match. I'm going to try to read them. Would you listen to them? Because God has them in his word and he wants you to see not one mighty warrior who fought for his king is forgotten. And here comes a band of brothers, mighty warriors who are going to pass by fighting for God's king. Here they come. Verse 24. There's Asahel, the brother of Joab, who is one of the 30. There's Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. There's Shammah of Herod. There's Elika of Herod. There's Helez, the Palatite, and Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiezer of Anathoth, Mebunai, the Hushatite, Zalman, the Hoite, Maharai of Netophah, Helab, the son of Bana of Netophah, Ittai, the son of Rebai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin, Benaiah of Pirathon, Hedai of the brooks of Gash, Abi Alban, the Arbanahite, Asmanaveth of Bahurim, Elihaba, the Shalbanite, the sons of Jashin, Jonathan, Finally, a normal name for us in English. There we go. Thank you for the break. Now the music starts again. There's Shammah, the Haratite. Abiyam, the son of Sharar, the Haratite. Eleleph, the son of Abishai, of Makkah. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Hezro of Carmel. Pariah, the Arbite. Agal, the son of Nathan, of Zobah. Benai, the Gadite. Zelak, the Ammonite. Nahariah, of Beeroth. The armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zariah, and stop with me at verse 38. And there comes Uriah the Ithrathite, Gareb the Ithrathite. It's like standing at the Vietnam Memorial Wall or two years ago when I was in the, the Philippines and there's a, there's a cemetery there for all the men who fell in World War II in the Pacific Theater. And there's this great green space and marbled granite wall that goes around and it's name after name after name after name. That's what's being done here. Time would fail to tell of all their exploits, but they're listed here so that we not forget there was a band of brothers who fought for God and his king. And God used these types of men to protect God's Messiah and carry out his promises. These were men who voluntarily accepted the inherent hazards of their oath and they placed the welfare and security of God's king and God's people before their own. Such were the mighty men of Israel. And we're to go praise God for these mighty men. This is Hebrews 11 in the Old Testament. But one scene remains. And this scene at the literary heart of the chapter shows us that what was at the heart of every one of David's mighty men. Would you read with me verses 13 to 17? Let's go back to the heart of this list. Three unnamed mighty men are about to show us the value of God's king and their love for him. This is what Holy Scripture says. And three of the 30 chief men went down And they came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, if someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, it's by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. 
but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is God's word. David the king is in a bad spot. He's hiding out in the king of Adullam, trying both to avoid the assassination attempts of his father-in-law, King Saul, and the ambushes of the fearsome Philistines. But he's not only in a bad spot, apparently scholars tell us he's in a bad time of year. It's harvest time, which likely means the weather's hot and he's thirsty. But while God's king is in a bad spot and a bad hot time of year, he's also safe. And he has everything he needs, relatively speaking. How do we know? Verse 14, where is David? He's in a stronghold, surrounded by these elite groups of Navy SEALs. I think he's okay. But that sets up the surprising action that follows. Near Bethlehem, his own hometown, David remembers there's a well at the gate of Bethlehem. Most likely, David quenched his thirst from that well there growing up, probably even this very time of year at harvest time. And with a mixture of part nostalgia and longing so close to Bethlehem, his home, David just expresses a longing. Oh, I wish I could just have a drink from the well for my hometown in Bethlehem again. We're so close, but I'm here. Now, again, however thirsty David is, I don't think that David getting a drink from the well of Bethlehem is an absolute necessity. He's thirsty, but I'm not sure he's dehydrated to the point of death because he's in a stronghold surrounded by his men. And surely there are safer water sources nearby because between David and Bethlehem is one small problem. A garrison of Philistines. Just a small problem. But then staring danger in the face, arising mostly from nothing else than a desire to honor their king, three men, maybe bored from sitting around, go on a bold and daring mission. Between their king and the well are a garrison of Philistines. And these three men, according to verse 16, fight their way through the Philistine camp and they make it to the well. And once at the well, while one fills the animal skin pouches, two other men form a perimeter. And then they do it again. Having fought their way in, they fight their way back out to the Philistines. And remarkably, not only do they not lose a single drop of their blood, but they don't lose a single drop of water for their king. I can't even keep hot tea in my mug when I drive down the road. And they're fighting a battle keeping water in here. And they say, this is for you, our king. Where did you get it from? From the well, David. You said you wanted to drink from the well. You're our king. Here it is. It's stunning courage and loyalty. Here's a detail. They would have had to march 12 miles, not riding a car or a Humvee or a tank or a Chinook helicopter. They marched 12 miles from Adullam to Bethlehem, broke through the Philistines, got water from the well, broke back through the Philistines and brought it back to David. You and I try to do burpees and up downs for fun. These men break through Philistines for fun. Why did these men hazard their lives for a king to get a drink from something that reminded him of his childhood? Why did they do it? Here's the only reason I think the text shows you, because they loved the king that much. 
There's a scene in the real-life event of Black Hawk Down when a U.S. helicopter, more than one, is shot down during a mission in Mogadishu, Somalia. Somalians are descending around the down chopper. They'd soon make a torturous example of the pilots if they got to them. So without hesitation, two Delta Force teammates, Gary Gordon and Randy Sugart, volunteered to be inserted to fight for the lives of those wounded pilots. They repeat the request several times for a voluntary mission, and they get repeatedly denied each time because they're told their insertion into the zone would mean their own death. But they insisted on protecting their brothers in arms from death. And after the third request and being informed again that their insertion would mean their likely termination, Gordon and Sugart are inserted with nothing more than a sidearm and their sniper rifle to fight a Somalian army and protect the down pilots. The two men establish a two-man perimeter, place themselves in the direct line of fire, deplete their ammunition first of their rifle and then of their pistol, and then shoot until killed. Now, in doing so, they save the life of one of the pilots who's alive today. And Gordon and Sugart did it for the love and loyalty of a band of brothers and in keeping with the creed of the special forces that says, I will not fail those with whom I serve. Where are those men? For our king. For Jesus. What those two valiant men did for love and loyalty to fellow soldiers, these three men did for love of their king. And while they fought, they gave their life and they fought to death. These ancient Navy SEALs fought to give their life, to give their king a cup of cold water. Why? They loved their king. I know David has his faults, but they knew him better than any one of us in here. And they were willing to lay down their life to give him a drink because they loved the king. There was nobody like this king. David's men knew him best. What kind of man would it be? What kind of king could it be to be the object of that kind of devotion? There's no king like him before or after. They risk their lives to give their king a drink. Now listen, here's what's happening. Their deep willingness to lose their life The devotion of these three men, here's what happens in this chapter. It unfurls an emblem of devotion over all the mighty men in this chapter, showing you what lays at the heart and the reason for all of their courage and loyalty. All the courage and loyalty the mighty men have in this chapter, all of their devotion arises out of a deep love for their king and a loyalty to the people and the God who's installed them. Behold their love for the king. And if you don't get what's going on, David gets the weight of it all. When he realizes what's just happened, he pours out the water. He's not being wasteful. He's not disrespecting them. That would have not have been to an offense to those men who risked their life because they know the significance of David's words and action. David realized that that kind of risky, radical, put your life on the line devotion is worthy of only God himself. So he pours out the water as a drink offering to the Lord, to Yahweh. What you men just did I'm not disrespecting you, but what you just did out of deep love and devotion for me, verse 17, to pour out your blood for me, that type of love is only fit for God. Oh, Lord, I can't drink this. This devotion is only meant for you, and I pour it out as a drink offering before you. Only God is worthy of that kind of love, David says. Do you see this section and scene? Mighty men fighting with one another for love and out of love and loyalty to their king. You drink down the virtue and honor of this chapter with both hands. 
Oh, to love this kind of king. Oh, to fight with such a noble band of brothers. God was delivering his people and his Messiah king through mighty men who acted in light of God's promises. Take action, for we know the promise of our God. He will deliver us from the hand of the Philistines. Now, can we draw some lessons together? Let me just do a few to suggest for us this list of mighty men. Here's what I'm arguing. There's a list of mighty men in chapter 1 and a mighty man in chapter 3, and the Spirit of God doesn't waste space. Here's some applications I'm offering. Here's a list of mighty men that flank the king, and what do they show us? Here's one. They show us the need for men. Without such men, God doesn't deliver his people or his king. We pointed out throughout the series, through David's life, through the story of Samuel, it shows us the need of men who will neither abdicate their role nor abuse their role. And Shakespeare's Macbeth talked about this with Dave Schwingle, our resident Shakespeare scholar. I just promoted him to that. He is that. He is that. He, is, he calls me Dr. Shakespeare scholar. Here we go. Amen. He said amen. And Shakespeare's Macbeth, his wife goads him to act like a man. You know the line. She says to her husband, stick your courage to the sticking place. You know what she's saying? She's saying, act like a man. Show the courage and strength that a man should show. But Lady Macbeth, at that moment, she's manipulating her husband to abuse the strength of his manhood. She's goading him to use his masculinity for evil to murder a rival out of raw ambition. But at the same time, she calls him to abuse his manhood and skill. Macbeth abdicates his manhood. How? He abdicates his role as a man and as a husband rather than stand up to his wife. When she asks him to murder, he capitulates. What does he do? He abdicates his role. What we need is men who will neither abuse their role nor abdicate their role nor be embarrassed by their role. The mighty men show us the need for mighty Godly men. They show us the need for courage. Courage for the glory of God and the good of others. These mighty men are not fighting for their own glory. They're on the octagon fighting to be the next, the greatest, the heavyweight MMA fighter of the world. They're not in it for themselves. They show blood, earnest courage for God's king and for God's people. What would that kind of courage mean for us to live that way as a local church? What would it mean to show that kind of glory for God, good of others, courage for missions? These mighty men show us the need for courage, for God's glory and the good of others. Courage for a cause bigger than yourself, a love bigger for yourself, and the most glorious king of all. Courage for the king, for Jesus. And Lord of the Rings, I had to put it in here somewhere. Aragon shows his virtue, his selfless courage, not as many point out, not in the midst of a battle, but as he makes a decision to ride in underneath to honor and summon a long held oath. And he doesn't stop to obsess with what's best for him. He doesn't obsess with his mental health. He doesn't look inside and ask what I should do in light of my desires within. All that matters to Aragon is that he fulfills his duty. He places his duty above pleasures, the needs of many over the needs of his own desires. He rouses his men with these words. We must walk wide eyed into the trap with courage and small hope for ourselves. It may prove that we ourselves shall perish utterly, but this I deem is our duty. They show us a need for courage, but not only courage, duty bound courage, but but they show us the need, not just for, for, for bravado, masculine courage. No, no, no. This is a courage based on a wide-eyed faith in God. Be strong 
And let your heart take courage, all of you who wait on the Lord. Psalm 31, 34. Hebrews 11, 35 and 37. All these you see, you know how it happened? You know, through CrossFit, through nutrition, through diet. Through, no, 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 no. You know how it happened? Through faith in God who promised, they conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouth of lions, and some not having received the promise, by faith endured being sawn in sunder, for they saw a builder who makers God, and they had looked away to Christ, the captain of their salvation. That's what's happening here. The need for a wide-eyed faith in God. William Cooper he saw a poem written by Horace. And in Horace, he's advocating for the golden meme. Don't go, don't take too many risks in life. Don't go too far. Make sure you're moderate. And William Cooper, who wrote, who wrote, who wrote, uh, 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 the, he did write that. That's who he wrote. There's a fountain. He wrote, there's a fountain. I was thinking of the other one that we sing. Um, so William Cooper, friend of John Newton, he reads Horace's poem that says, take it easy, take it easy. He reads Horace's poem and he writes a poem in response. It's kind of like a rap battle among poets. So here's what happens. Cooper says, you said that. Here's what I'll say to you. The Christian has an art unknown to thee. He holds no parley with unmanly fears. Where duty bids, he confident steers. Faces a thousand dangers at her call. And trusting in his God, he surmounts them all. Wide-eyed faith in God. Ready? This one's not hard. These mighty men show us the need for others. And in this case, because it's men, it shows us the need for fellow men. David the king needed men in his life. And if David the king needed this kind of people and he needed these kinds of men in his life, then so do you. Jesus, the son of David, had 12 friends. Three of them were among his closest friends. You won't fight sin. You won't increase your joy unless you fight with a band of brothers. And I know there are lots of ways you can do that. But I want to tell you the most obvious way, the simplest God-ordained place for that kind of band of brothers is in a local church where you already voluntarily covenanted together before God and the elect angels to do battle for king and one another. Now, we have a men's retreat coming up, but the main topic is friendship. Now, set realistic expectations, but it's a good place to start. If you haven't signed, if you have signed up, pray. If you haven't, why not? It's not a command to go in the Bible, but the opportunity to go provides an opportunity to grow with men. You already made a promise before God to fight for them and out of love of God's great king. Here's just a simple point. David didn't do it alone, and you can either, and he gave us the local church. Their need for God-dependent effort. I'll just say this in passing. The fact that God gave them promise enabled them to fight for the victory. God's sovereignty, his promises don't make you lazy and passive in fighting sin, but gutsy and active. Let's fight for our God and his people for who knows what our great God will do. Arise and take action for God has promised that through David, through Christ, I'm not being silly, but all things are possible. We need loyalty to God's king. And now we're circling to the end. Don't these men show us the need for loyalty and love for God's chosen king? These men show us the loveliness of their king. They're willing to lay down their lives for him. But our loyalty lies not to David, but to the son of David. And so Jesus, the son of David, can turn to us and he say, who will it be who will leave houses and lands and forsake father and mother? Who will it be? Who will it be? Who will it be to show the world the surpassing value of me, of Christ? 
Where are those of you in our midst? Where are those who will cut out their eye, who will cut off their hand for their surpassing value of knowing Christ and making him known? These men show us the fierce loyalty that we need to have for Jesus, the king. And when you see it, your heart should be drawn out. Oh, Christ. Oh, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. But you know what? The end of this chapter shows us this. You know what we need more than anything else? We simply need a better king. I didn't make that up. That's not a cool rhetorical turn of phrase or hermeneutical move. You know how I know that? What's the last verse in the chapter? Look at verse 39. You know who is among David's mighty men? Here's the last person who goes behind the procession. And there comes Uriah the Hittite, 37 and all. Oh, David, you mean you killed one of your mighty men? Uriah, you took one of your men's life who laid down his life for you. He would have done it. You see, this means in the book of Samuel and the final chapters, as David and his men are laid to rest, it's telling you this final verse points forward beyond David, telling you we need a better king than David because David was part of the problem. What's the old line? The best of men are at best men. We need a king, a better king. Now, just note, you can go a million ways with it. But David was a king who betrayed one of his own men. But now watch Jesus, the king who was betrayed for his own men. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus, the son of David, broke bread and he blessed it and he poured wine and he passed it. And he said to a room full of men like David who would betray him the very hour they should love him. He looked him in the eye and he said, Peter, this is my body, which is for you. John, this cup is poured out for you. And I want you to drink this in remembrance of me. You see, in the end, what you see is the faltering love of these men for God's king. But if you keep looking, you're going to see the fierce love of a better king than David. Here is a king who no longer has mighty men laying down their life for him. But here is a king, the mighty God himself, who lays down his life for people like you and me. And we say, oh, what is man that you are mindful of him? Oh, who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I that he would pray, not my will, thine, Lord? The answer I may never know why he ever loved me so. And to an old rugged cross he'd go, for who am I? Behold the fierce love of Christ for his people. The captain of our salvation. The mighty love of Christ for sinners like David, for sinners like us and a church like ours. You know, one of the last sermons that Charles Spurden preached, the words here on your front of order of worship, And he wanted people to know as he passed from being the pastor, here's what he wanted to know. And here's what could hang at the end of 2 Samuel 23 as Charles Spurgeon and has since retired from pastoral ministry of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Here's what he left his congregation with. Christ is the most magnanimous of captains. There never was his like among the choices of princes. He's always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. Is there anything that is gracious, generous, kind and tenor, yea, lavish and superabundant in love? You will always find it in him. And here's the point. God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus even to this day. Amen.